Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that we would thank your thoughts after you, that you would protect us from the evil one who wants to come and steal this word away. So, Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm grateful that my mom and dad are here this morning to share this Mother's Day together with us. I had the rare and distinct privilege to be raised in a Christian home under a mother and father who both love me and who love the gospel. I'm a Christian today and a pastor here at Kenwood because of what the Lord has done in my life through them. And I was thinking of that legacy this weekend as I was preparing for this morning's message because they, just, they didn't just lead me to faith in Christ. They also steered me clear of a great many pitfalls along the way. And I can remember one such time when I was in high school, I had uh, been at my church youth group one Wednesday night, and the lesson was about God's grace and his forgiveness to sinners. And the lesson was something along the lines of, no matter what you do, no matter how bad the sin is that you commit, because Jesus took the punishment for your sin, you can never be punished for your sin. And so the teaching was really emphatic. No matter what you do, you have no punishment to fear from God because of Jesus. And I think the teaching that I heard was fundamentally sound. There was no problem there. But there was a problem with how I applied the teaching. Somehow I came away from the Bible study not only with the idea that Jesus took the punishment for my sin, but also the idea that it doesn't matter whether or not I sin. Because God will never punish me no matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I do. No matter what I do, all's good with God. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had taken a gospel truth and twisted it into an antinomian application. So I came home armed with my new discovery and wanting to share it with my parents. And I encountered my father. And I explained to him that we really didn't need to sweat the sin stuff anymore. <laughs> it doesn't really matter if we sin since we're never going to be punished for it. That was the conclusion I had come to. And I could tell dad wasn't really tracking with me. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he did next. This was really good. He got a Bible and he opened it to Hebrews chapter 12. And he read to me from verses 7 through 10, which says this. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be, the, be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And I was like, oh. 
And he was like, what were you saying about it not mattering? <laughs> Whether or not you sin, you have a father who disciplines you. Now, I titled the sermon this morning, The Dangers of Doctrinal Knowledge, because we are so often prone to take true biblical doctrines and twist them or misapply them in our lives. How many of you have ever heard somebody justify sinful behavior by appealing to true biblical doctrines? They can quote the Bible and they know how to use the Bible to justify just about any old thing that they want to do. How many of you have been that person who knows the Bible, who can quote the Bible, and then can use the Bible to justify what everybody else around you recognizes to be sin? I've heard this done before with the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. I've heard people say before, See, it says you have to learn how to love yourself first before you can love your neighbor properly. I can't very well look to the needs and concerns of others unless I take care of my own needs and concerns first. Because you got to love your neighbors as yourself. Love yourself first. And so a command that Jesus clearly intended to make people more unselfish gets tweaked in a way that would make people more selfish than they were before. And now with theological justification. And so people do this all the time. Many of us in this room do this kind of thing from time to time. And we do it because in our sinfulness, we would rather justify our sin than repent of our sin. We are evading God's word rather than embracing its conflict with our sin. And it comes so naturally to us sometimes that we're not even aware that we're doing it. But that doesn't make us innocent of suppressing God's word when we do it. It just signals that the human condition, indeed our condition, is more desperate than we would like to admit. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be looking at all of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. And in this text, we are going to find Paul confronting that very kind of error that I just describe to you. The very kind of error that you and I are prone to. Paul is addressing a group of believers in Corinth who believe that it is okay for them to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And they are doing so while boasting of their knowledge of true biblical doctrine. And what you find is that while their knowledge is right, their application is wrong. And not just a little wrong, potentially damnably wrong. And so Paul shows them, and I think he's showing us, that this kind of knowledge isn't freeing at all, but it's spiritually dangerous. And there's two types of danger that he's describing here. In verses 1 through 6, he's describing the danger to yourself. And in verses 7 through 13, he's describing the danger to others. So 1 through 6 is the danger to yourself. In verses 7 through 13 is the danger to others. The danger of theological knowledge. So what is this first danger to yourself? Verses 1 through 6. Well, the danger to yourself is arrogance. Look at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols... 
we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, I want you to remember what we said previously about that little phrase at the beginning of the verse, now concerning. You may remember that that little phrase, now concerning, has appeared twice already in the letter. Chapter 7 and verse 1, also in chapter 7 and verse 25. But the first time it appears is in chapter 7 and verse 1, where Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And you'll remember in chapter 7 and verse 1, it was at, at that point that Paul began addressing the concerns that the Corinthians had raised with him in the letter that they had written to him previously. And so every time you see that phrase, now concerning, that's Paul signal, signaling that he's returning to the letter to address the concerns that they had raised with him. And so now here we are in chapter 8 and verse 1, and it begins with, now concerning. Now concerning those things about which you wrote, this time it's about those food offered to idols. You brought that up in your letter. Now this food offered to idols is actually translating one word. And the term here is a little more generic, I think, than what you read in the ESV. Paul's focus is not so much on food per se, but on the fact that some of the food that they were eating had been previously offered to idols. You have to remember, this is the Greco-Roman world. This is the first century. This is not a post-Christian world. This is a pre-Christian world. And the default mode of the masses was idolatry and going and eating in idols' temples. That was the default mode. And so they were accustomed to eating food sacrificed to idols. And whenever a pagan would sacrifice an animal to a pagan deity... Part of the meat from the animal was burned on the altar to that deity. Part of it was eaten as a part of a solemn meal within the temple precincts. And then the, another part of it would be sold in the marketplace, just out to the general public. And so because of that meat's connection to idolatry, there was this question among all these new Christians about whether they could eat this meat in good conscience. Some said yes, we can eat it. Others said no. Those who were saying yes were saying what you see in quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge. That's Paul's quoting of their justification for why they think they can eat. We all have knowledge. By which they mean that us Christians have special doctrinal knowledge that allows us to eat that meat. But before gets into Paul gets into why they think they know what they know, he issues this warning about what they know. He says this at the end of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul's warning us what the danger is in knowing right doctrine. The problem is not with the doctrine, but with the knowers of the doctrine. The knowers of right doctrine are sinners. And they often do the wrong thing with their right knowledge. And in this case, he says that their knowledge tends to puff up, which is an expression that literally means to fill something up with air like you would fill a balloon up with air. But when it's used figuratively, as it is here, it refers to somebody who's becoming arrogant. We have the same kind of idiom in our language. It would be like someone who we, we would say that somebody's gotten a big head, right? They're so puffed up, they got a big head. They're prideful. 
because of their right doctrinal knowledge. But again, we have to emphasize here that the problem is not the doctrine, but the knowers of the doctrine. And so Paul's not denigrating knowledge of doctrine. Rather, what he's trying to do is to exalt love in your knowing of the doctrine. He says, love builds up, which means that love builds other people up. Knowledge without love gives you a big head and makes you arrogant. Knowledge with love builds other people up in the faith and makes them strong. The point of knowing is not so you can puff up, but so that you can build up other people. That's the point. Knowledge alone won't do that. You have to have love. And so Paul issues warnings against loveless knowledge. But look what he says in verse 2. If anyone imagines, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Anyone who's becoming puffed up because of what they think they know about God does not know God as he wishes to be known. Well, how does God wish to be known? He wants to be known by people who love him and who love his people. So look what verse 3 says. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So I, verse 3 is making two points. Paul's trying to say it's not what you know, but who you love that really matters. The devil knows about God, but only the redeemed truly love God. That's the distinguishing mark. Not what you know about God, but whether or not you love him. So it's not what you know, but who you love that defines who you really are. And then the second thing he's trying to say is that it's not ultimately about what you know, but about who knows you. Our love for God is not ultimately based on our knowledge of God, but on God's knowledge of us. You remember Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9? Paul says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, by which he means you know God, but he knew you first. Or maybe 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. God's knowledge of us precedes all of our knowledge of him and in fact enables our knowledge and love for him. That's what verse 3 is about. If anyone loves God, and if I were to translate it, I think more literally, it would be he has been known by God. God's knowledge precedes and causes our love. Before we ever loved God, before we ever knew about God, before we were even in existence, God knew us and determined everything about us. If that is true, how can anyone be arrogant? How can anyone be puffed up about what they know? If you are arrogant in your knowledge of God, then you have not really comprehended the God of your salvation. He is great and good. You and I are not. He loved you before all time. You and I did not love like that. He took the initiative in our salvation. You and I did not take the initiative in our salvation. If all that's true, where then is boasting? 
Let him who boasts get off his high horse and boast in the Lord. We have no reason to be puffed up at all. Do you see what Paul's getting at here? Before he ever turns to address what they think they know, he addresses the arrogance of the knowers. That's the point. And it's a good moment for us to pause and to ask ourselves, does our knowledge of God lead us to love? Or does our knowledge of God, of what the scriptures say about God, does it lead us to arrogance? If you know God but are arrogant, you do not yet know as you ought to know, as verse 2 says. That's the deal. But then Paul turns to what it is these Corinthians know about the meat that has been offered to idols. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Did you notice the quotation marks in that verse? Those are indicating that Paul is quoting, perhaps summarizing in slogans, what they believed. Okay, these are the doctrinal premises of their freedom to go eat this meat. That's what, this is, that's what he's quoting there. And so verse 4 is explaining what the Corinthians knew that enabled them to eat that meat in good conscience. Paul sums it up with those slogans. An idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. That's what they're saying. Guess what? Both of those statements are true. Paul's not going to refute what they're saying. Both of the statements are true. He agrees with them. There may be carved statues of Zeus in the world, but there is no such thing as Zeus. There may be temples to Jupiter in the world, but there is no such thing as the god Jupiter. An idol has no real existence in the sense that the gods they signify are a farce. They are fabrications of human, human imagination. How do we know that? Because, Paul says, there is no God but one. That's what they're saying too. Which is essentially the fundamental confession of every faithful Jew and every faithful uh, Christian. I think it's an echo of what we heard read in the Old Testament reading today from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We believe in one God. All these other gods are fakes. So the Corinthians were claiming a right to eat the food sacrificed to idols because of their right doctrinal knowledge that there's only one God. God alone is God. The false gods are no gods at all. We can eat whatever we want. We can't be defiled by non-existent deities. So look at verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And notice he put those gods and lords in quotation marks. They are so-called gods. Paul is not granting the objective existence of those false deities. That's not what he's doing. They're so-called gods. And there's many of them. Many of these so-called gods and lords. And yet, we know there's really only one God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's expressing this truth as clearly as he can. And then in verse 6, he's going to double down on this truth by quoting what many people think is an early Christian creed or perhaps a hymn. In verse 6, 
And here's what he says. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This wasn't really a part of the sermon, but it's remarkable here that he's making this statement about God, the Father, and then Jesus Christ. And he's identifying Jesus Christ as the Lord, I think the very same Lord who was worshipped in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Um, this, is, this is a clear reference to Jesus' deity. But what's Paul saying here? Paul's agreeing with what the Corinthians profess to know. It's, but it's not their doctrine that is the problem. It is their arrogance and lack of love that's the problem. Now, I was in college before I really began to be interested in doctrine and, and theology. Um, I really just, the Lord just overcame me with an intense interest in this that I hadn't had before in my life. And not only was I reading the Bible more, I was reading books about doctrine and theology. I was reading Francis Schaeffer and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and, and all these others. And um, when I was a sophomore in college, one weekend, some buddies and I, I think I may have told you this story before, but here it goes again if I have told it to you. But one weekend, some buddies and I went to visit some friends at a Christian college that was about an hour and a half south of where uh, my university was. It was our state Baptist college. And I ended up hanging out this one day with this guy who would become my uh, theological nemesis for the weekend. And it was, it was a really bad pairing. I was kind of a Calvinazi. <laughs> and uh, he was a neoliberal studying religion under liberal religion professors. And one evening, he and I were sitting in his dorm room debating uh, theology. I think it was sovereignty and election or something like that. But it was a really difficult conversation given that not only did we disagree about what the Bible means, but we also dis disagreed about whether or not the Bible was inspired. And so I would make a point and then he would make a point and we would go back and forth and it was just getting more and more heated. But every time I would make a point, his response was always a question to me. And we never could stay on task because just when I had him cornered or thought I'd have him cornered, he'd ask another question and take the conversation off into this whole new direction. And finally, I, just, I was getting so frustrated with him, I said to him, why do you keep asking me questions? Why can't you make like a positive assertion, make an argument for your side? And this is what he said to me. He said, because I am trying to teach you through the Aristotelian method of question and answer. Well, I am just prideful enough that that bothered me. And I uh, jumped up, I bowed up right in his face and snarled something at him. And it was all I could do to keep from slugging the guy in the name of Jesus. <laughs> now, who was the problem in that room? That day, I thought the problem was him, but now I believe that the problem was me. And I don't think my theology was the problem. It was my arrogance and lack of love that were the problem. I was trying to win an argument, but I was not trying to win my brother. And there can be all the difference in the world between those two things at times. I don't think I needed to change my theology, but I did need my theology to change me. Sure, I had knowledge, but there wasn't a speck of love in my engagement 
with him when I'm bowing up to him. I wasn't speaking the truth in love. I was speaking the truth in arrogance. I know I'm not the only one in this room who's had to wrestle with this temptation to know things without loving people. We got a lot of different kinds of people in this room. We got a lot of seminary students and we got a whole lot of what I call normal people. <laughs> um, but the temptation that I'm, I'm talking about here this morning is not just one that's faced by seminary students or people formally studying theology. If you're in this church, it's likely because you like Bible teaching. You like theology. You like sound doctrine. And no matter whether you are a seminary student or not, you are being fed biblical doctrine week in and week out, month after month, year after year. And the question is, what are you doing with it? Is the intake of right doctrine corresponding with a growing love for God's people? Is it corresponding with a tender concern for the lost? Or do you wield your knowledge like a bludgeon against people? Is it making you loveless and arrogant? If it is, then you have not yet known as you ought to know. And it is possible that there is a question whether you have been known by the one that you profess to know. If you find yourself an exemplar of that latter person, it's not too late to change. It's not too late to humble yourself, to repent, to make a change. You don't have to continue down the path of puffed up knowledge. You can redirect down a path of spirit-driven love. That's really the point of the text. The heart of what Paul's getting at here is love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Your knowledge is a danger to you if it leads to arrogance. Remember James 4, 6? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're prideful, God's opposed to you. If your knowledge is taking you to pride, you need to repent of that pride. So the danger to yourself in verses 1 through 6 is arrogance. The danger to others is a stumbling block in verses 7 through 13. Everybody look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, remember in verse 1 where Paul quotes their slogan. They're all saying, okay, we all have knowledge. Well, now Paul is letting them know, no, actually not everyone in your church has the same knowledge that you have. There are some people in your church who last week were not Christians and they were just like every other pagan in Corinth. They were showing up to idols temples. They were making sacrifices to false gods and they were eating meat offered to idols in the temple feasts. They have just come to know Jesus as their savior and Lord after a lifetime of idolatry. And their consciences are still very tender to anything associated with idols. Whenever they eat that food, it takes them right back into the world that, that they just fled from. And as a result, their conscience is defiled when they eat that food. Everything about that world, including the food offered to idols, it just feels wrong to them. And when they eat this food, it's not a matter of indifference 
to them, it takes them right back into the temptations of idolatry and it defiles them. In other words, Paul's trying to tell these guys who claim they have knowledge, he's saying those people who just came out of idolatry, they have no business eating that food when their conscience is telling them no. And yet you're encouraging them to say yes. But then Paul concedes again that the food really isn't the ultimate moral question here. And in that sense, he agrees with the puffed up knowers. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Paul agrees that it's possible to eat food sacrificed to idols and it not be a bad thing. Do you see that? He's going to explain in what circumstances it might not be a bad thing in chapter 10. So we'll wait till we get there for that. But right now he's warning them that they are misapplying their liberty as a result of misapplying their true knowledge of doctrine. And so look at the next verse. Verse 9. Take care that this right or this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Yes, there are times when you may have freedom to eat this kind of meat. But be careful, because there are times that you don't have a right to eat this meat. And if your eating becomes a stumbling block to the weak, to those brothers and sisters who are still feeling the tug of idolatry in their lives, you, then you are a stumbling block to them. In what way are they a stumbling block? And then verse 10 here is key. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Aha. Now the cat is out of the bag. These believers who claim to have knowledge are not merely eating the food sold in the marketplace. They are actually dining within an idol's temple. They are claiming that their knowledge enables them to eat in a solemn feast dedicated to one of these deities, these false deities. That is another matter altogether than merely eating the meat sold in the marketplace. The Corinthians claim that since there's no such thing as a false god, then they could eat this food and do so at a religious feast. Paul's going to tell them in chapter 10, no, 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 no. Uh, you are greatly mistaken. You may think you can go into these feasts because they're dedicated to false gods, which are not gods, but make no mistake, just because there are no gods corresponding to these idols, that does not mean that there are no spiritual beings behind those idols. Paul says that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In chapter 10 and verse 6. Your right theological knowledge is not taking into account the demonic realm, which is very real even though Jupiter and Zeus are not real. And you must not share in the table of demons while sharing every week in the table of Christ. That's all coming in chapter 10. But before Paul tells them that, he confronts them about the true meaning of dining in an idol's temple. But right now, he's mainly concerned about how their behavior affects these weaker brothers. And look what he says in verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul is saying that if your knowledge of doctrine causes you to destroy your weaker brother, there is no love in that. 
And by destroyed, I think he means it in the sense of salvation. He is warning against the very real prospect that those arrogant knowers in the Corinthian congregation might lead one of their brothers back into idolatry. If that happens, then they are turning away from Christ and those people will go to judgment for that idolatry. And Paul's saying, how dare you lead one of your brothers to judgment because of your arrogant knowledge? This is a brother for whom Christ died. Did you get that? Christ died for this brother and you can't even change your diet for this brother? Who do you think you are? Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. He's saying if you do this, you're not merely sinning against your brother. You're sinning against King Jesus who died for your brother. You remember what Jesus said about this in Mark chapter 9 and verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus doesn't like it when people make his little ones to stumble. So you better take care. Don't cause one of his precious ones to stumble and fall away from Christ. Jesus says it would be better for you to go to judgment yourself than for you to make one of his disciples fall away. And so Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is determined not to betray Christ by sinning against his brothers and sisters in this way. But notice what he says. Paul says, Paul says he would never eat meat again. And he doesn't use the, the term for idle meat here. He just uses the regular word for meat. In other words, he's, he's willing to restrict his freedom even more. If, he, if it would help his brothers and sisters make it to the finish line. I just won't eat meat at all if it'll help them. That's what knowledge with love looks like. Knowledge with love is not interested in asserting freedoms and rights. It's interested in figuring out what serves and builds up brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it looks like. And it will lay down rights and freedoms for the sake of love. <clears throat> when I first came to Kenwood some years ago, I, I taught through 1 Corinthians in Sunday school, and Mike Franz was in that class. And after we had gone through this passage, he shared with me a little bit about his testimony. We hadn't known each other very long at that point. And he said that he had begun walking with the Lord in about 2005, I think it was. And it was after years of living a life of just living as a single guy, partying and drinking and just living like a heathen. And then the Lord got a hold of him, convicted him of his sin, and he decided to get back into church to walk with Christ. And the Lord just changed his life in about the mid-2000s. And he started going to this other church, not this church, but a different church. And when he got into this church, he, as this sort of newly minted disciple of Jesus, he was... He hooked up with a group of other single guys in that church. And that group of guys every week in that church were going out to bars and kind of flirting around with the very things that he had just come out of. And here he was trying to get away from this life. And here they were bringing him back into it. 
And not only that, they were taking him to the places that were most tempting for him to go back to his old life. And no matter what you think about drinking alcohol and Christian freedom, those guys were trampling all over his weak conscience. He ended up having to leave that church because that friend circle was just shutting him down. He couldn't make any headway in growth in Christ there. When I was in college, I became friends with a guy named Rafe my sophomore year. The Lord had saved him from a life of drugs and drinking and partying. And he was as earnest as anyone to get away from that life so that he could follow Christ. And in those early days after his conversion, it was really bumpy because he kept filling the pull back to his, his old life. And I think he was really con- converted, but it was just a struggle. And there would be times when I would call him on the phone. And if I couldn't get a hold of him within two or three calls, then I knew he was off the grid. He'd kind of fallen off the, the wagon. And something would happen to him, and it would trigger a desire, and he would just be gone for two or three days. And w- one time I did this, and after two or three days, I finally reconnected with him and found out where he had been and imbibing things he shouldn't be imbibing and being with people in places he shouldn't have been. But the Lord brought him through that eventually. He stopped having those, that pull, but it was hard at first. But what would it have done to him if I had insisted upon my Christian freedom to go hang out in a sports bar and watch a game? What would it have been if I had insisted that we needed to reconnect with old frat buddies so that we could hang out in the frat house with everybody? Now, maybe somebody could make an argument for freedom to do that, but not under those circumstances. It would have been unloving and soul-destroying, self-absorbed act of selfishness if I had destroyed my brother because of my vaunted knowledge that I have the freedom to do something. That's not the way of Christ. So Paul's saying there is a danger to yourself that is arrogance, and there is a danger to others that is a stumbling block. Listen, for as long as you are a member of this church, you are going to be facing temptations like this. Temptations to have your own way to assert your own theological superiority, even while trampling the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ. And as long as you're a member of this church, there will be weak brothers and sisters here for as long as there are brothers and sisters here. And you may find yourself in the position of being the weak brother and sister. And the question for you is, are you going to love them and lay down your life for them? And that means laying down your freedoms for them so that they can walk with Christ. Or will you insist on your freedom even when it destroys them? Now think about this. Think about who our ultimate example is in this. It's Jesus. Jesus had the freedom and the right to descend out of heaven with a sword in his hand and to destroy every single one of us in judgment. He had the right to do that. Instead, Jesus laid aside his rights so that he might save us. Philippians 2 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped for, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're a Christian, it's because the greatest man who ever lived laid aside his rights for you and did not insist on his freedoms for you. If Jesus laid down his life for us, how can we fail to lay down our lives for one another? Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would fill us with the spirit of God so that we live lives that are commensurate with the gospel of a savior who by rights could have judged us, but instead showed mercy to us. Father, would you give us lives that look like his so that people can see him in us as we love each other and as we humble ourselves. Father, do this among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.